You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I talk with Sky Cleary. Sky teaches at Columbia University, Bernard College, and the City University of New York. Her main interests are in existentialism and love. Her work has been published in the Paris Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, and New Republic. She is the author of Existentialism and Romantic Love and the co-editor of How to Live a Good Life. In this episode, we talk about romantic love, friendships, lessons from existentialism, martial arts, and so much more. Hello, Sky, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks, Maisha. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Sky, how did you get interested in philosophy? So it's a bit of a long story, but um, okay. I, I'll, I'll try and keep it short. I'm um, game. I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I first, I, I did do um, a year of philosophy in my undergraduate degree, but it was very heavily analytical and it really didn't grab me at that time. Um, but then, you know, a while later, I was doing an MBA and it was then that I was introduced to like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and a bunch of others and you know it struck so, so me. question here question here question here. yeah how are you being introduced to those figures in an MBA program I didn't yeah. expect that yeah so it's um so I studied at Macquarie University in Australia and they have some philosophers on faculty there and they offered classes like existentialism and entrepreneurship and uh, foundations of management thinking class Um, and I it was particularly my organizational behavior professor that inspired me because she was doing her PhD on um, existential dynamics in the boardroom and freedom and responsibility and so yeah it was um, all these kind of classes where I started hearing about uh, these philosophers and I was like wow why didn't they teach this in my undergraduate degree Um, so that kind of sparked it, but, you know, it was kind of the intersection of a few things in my life. Um, so it was, yes, my, doing my MBA, but at the same time I was sort of in my late twenties and I had lots of friends getting married and, um, I was under some family pressure to get married and deliver grandchildren. And, you know, I was looking around and, and there was a lot of pop culture, um, focused on this kind of romantic narrative of finding the one, falling in love, getting married, having babies, living happily ever after. And I just was started to wonder, you know, is that really what a good life is about? And, mm-hmm. you know, if a good life is about finding the one, like what is the one? Like how do you know? Um, but and the question that really grabbed me was whether you can choose to love or whether you can choose not to love. Um, And so I became fascinated with this question. And it was also around that time that a book came out called Tete a Tete by Hazel Rowley. And that was specifically on the relationship between Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre. And I, you know, and so certainly after that book, I was like, yep, this is what I need to learn more about this. Um, And what I admired about them from, from that book was that 
They rejected social norms, so they didn't get married. They had an open relationship, but they were still committed to each other for their whole lives. And I think what really grabbed me about that was I found it liberating to realise the importance of being able to choose what's right for the people in the relationship, like as long as it's adult and consenting. So I really admired that they created a relationship on their own terms and thought about their lives in in philosophical ways. And uh, so I was dealing with the same sorts of questions that that they were about, you know, juggling, you know, boyfriends and careers and work and, and things like that. So, and yeah, and so that was what started me off on that path. So it seems the the allure was a very a very practical one, right? As opposed to a theoretical one. Yeah, it definitely was. So yeah, and I, I had a boyfriend at the time who was um, complaining that uh, I was spending too much time studying and not spending enough time with him. And then when I suggested that I wanted to do a PhD, he got really mad. And I was like, what is wrong with th- this situation? And um, and so I, I started kind of thinking about that um, notion of freedom and how I guess my goals and how they um, kind of intersected with the goals of the person that I wanted to be with. And I was trying to understand, you know, what would I need to give up? Like, what was I being asked to give up in order to have this relationship? And I was like, well, is what I'm giving up worth the love that I'm receiving in return? Or is there something wrong with that equation? Um, And I, I decided there was something wrong with that equation. So... What did you end up doing your dissertation on? Existentialism and romantic love. Ah, and we're going to talk about that. So before we talk about that latter part, which is love, let's talk about existentialism a little bit, a little bit more. So you, you note in your latest essay in, in the collection, How to Live a Good Life, you note that there are different ideas about existentialism. And I, I wonder, is there still something that we can say about it as a philosophical orientation? You know, this is a good question because, you know, some people dismiss it as ex- existentialism as a mood or a historical moment. Uh, specifically dealing with the tragedies and absurdities of like the mid-20th century, particularly, you know, in the aftermath of the Second World War. But there is enduring um, interest in existentialism as a philosophy. And I think there are a couple of reasons for this. But I think the first reason is, the most important reason is, partly because, you know, we haven't figured out the meaning of life yet. Um, right. And, you know, not everyone buys into religious answers. But but even if you do, that doesn't answer all the questions about life. And, of course, there are religious existentialists like Kierkegaard. Um, but existentialism speaks to, to the question of creating meaning in life and, and where to start thinking about that. And I, I think another reason why existentialism is still popular is that you know, we're still faced with with global disasters and and trying to understand how we fit into the grand scheme of the world and and what we should do with our lives and and why shouldn't we kill ourselves and and how to get along with other people and how should we live and under what conditions and Nietzsche said something that along these lines and he says philosophy is visiting all the strange and questionable aspects of existence and I think there are still a lot of those and existentialism provides kind of a, a narrative to, to talk about the, the absurdity and, and some of these ambiguities of life. Can you talk about what you call existentialism bad reputation? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there are a few 
possible charges you could throw at the existentialists. But I think um, probably the main one is um, sometimes it's dismissed as a, a philosophy of individualism. And on the one hand, it does focus on the subjective experience and it emphasizes the importance of autonomy and an individual freedom. But that's only half the story because they also argue that freedom is meaningless without responsibility. And so if you leave out responsibility, you know, you end up with hedonism or libertinism, but not existentialism. Um, and Beauvoir said that to will yourself moral and to will yourself free are one and the same decision. And she said this because what she was trying to get at was that if you respect freedom for yourself, then you have to respect it for others. Otherwise, it's a moral fault. And so for the existentialists, yes, the individual is important, but it's only meaningful to talk about yourself in relationship with other people. And Jean-Paul Sartre says that actually we need other people to understand ourselves because they reveal aspects of our being that we can't see on our own. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of narcissistic. And, and yeah, it is in some ways. But um, actually, Simone de Beauvoir takes it even further than that and says, well, yes, that's true. But also, we're situated in webs of relationships. And, you know, we need to take others into account in our decisions because, we coexist because other people are there and, and they make our world meaningful and they infuse our world with meaning. So I think it's, um you know, you've got to remember that it's freedom and responsibility for the existential philosophers. So you, you, you're referring to these individuals as, as existentialists, um, but you also note that, you know, perhaps there's a problem with calling oneself an existentialist with a capital E. Help us make sense of that. Oh, yeah. So, and this goes to the heart of what existentialism is as well, um, because their view of the, the a person is that we're more than a label or we're more than a role because a person is a synthesis of their past actions, um, but also our present actions as well as our future intentions. So we're not a static thing. We're not fixed entities. We're not like, like a rock, like a rock just is. A rock isn't really becoming anything else. It's just being pushed around by the wind or the water or a person. But humans are different because we're always becoming and growing and overcoming ourselves. And so that's one of the reasons why also many people who we classify as existentialists or associate with the existential school were, were really uncomfortable with that term. And it actually started, like the existentialist label started when Gabriel Marcel, who was also an existential philosopher, labeled Sartre an existentialist. And, and the term kind of stuck. And Beauvoir and Sartre reluctantly accepted it because Everyone was calling them that, and so they're like, okay, well, fine, let's just go with it. But, of course, Albert Camus always rejected it. Um, and so, you know, what we're talking about when we talk about existentialism is kind of a group of philosophers who, who dealt with similar themes, such as freedom, choice, responsibility, anxiety, and awareness of death. Does it make sense for me to call myself an existentialist? I guess you could, but that would be defining yourself into a specific role or, or putting a label. But we've always got to remember that we're more than that. And Sartre gives an example of a waiter in a cafe who's embodying this 
uh, the role of a waiter to such perfection that he stopped being a real person in a way because he's defined specifically by this um, this role as a waiter and he is not taking into account you know future intentions and and projects and and goals. So we've got to, always got to remember that you know fine you might want to accept the certain labels at certain times, but. We've also got to remember that we're free to overcome those those labels and roles and they don't define everything about who we are. You kind of addressed this in the beginning, but I want to I want to go into a little bit more detail here. Given what we've talked about so far, how have some existentialist ideas informed and influenced your own life? Yeah, so uh, can I go back to the boyfriend story? Sure, sure. <laughs> you know um, I want you to go there. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it was one of the main reasons why I, I went on this path and, and did a PhD in existentialism. And it was, you know, as I mentioned, I think Simone de Beauvoir is probably one of my greatest influences. And, you know, it was her definition of authentic love as a mutual recognition of two freedoms that really caught me. And so for Beauvoir, um, the best kind of love is authentic love, which means respecting and acknowledging one another's freedom and not being possessive, not being jealous, not being dominating and, you know, not insisting the other person gives up their hopes and dreams. And in an authentic loving relationship, um, the people figure out goals together. And this kind of love also inspires us to be better people, but not just selfishly within the couple, but to be better people in the world. And, I realized with the relationship I was in, you know, it, it was the opposite of all that. Um, as I said, he, you know, he he got mad with me wanting to do a PhD because he said, oh, well, when are you going to have time for me? And, you know, Beauvoir's philosophy really helped me realize that that was a deeply inauthentic relationship because the recognition of freedom, it wasn't reciprocal. You know, my every move was trapped. I felt trapped. Um, you know, I, I wanted to see my friends occasionally and study for exams alone, but but that just wasn't possible within the relationship, which was kind of suffocating. And, you know, so Beauvoir's philosophy kind of helped me get my head around this and, and understand what was what the problem was and that you know, the difficult decision was to, was to leave um, and, you know, go on to a PhD and write a book called Existentialism and, and Romantic <laughs> Love about it. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because because in, in the book, um, it seems that before it's not the only philosopher that you engage. Right. So, so I, I want you to say a little bit more about the argument that is in the book in the Existentialism and Romantic Love, or should I say the arguments that you convey in the book called Existentialism and Romantic Love. So, yeah, I did cover five different philosophers. So, um, yeah, Beauvoir, Sartre, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and, and Max Stirner. And I think the main thing, message I, I came away from, from writing that book was that you know, we can't be free from everything because there are some things that are out of our power. And but what we can control is is our behavior. We can we can't control whether we're attracted to someone, but we can con- control whether we act on that a- attraction. Like you can, you know, if you're looking at an app, you can choose whether to swipe left or right. And certainly, there's nothing wrong with kind of uh, passionate love and you know the exhilaration and excitement that comes with that, but becoming kind of drunk on love or kind of abandoning ourselves, uh, that leads into to hedonism. Um, so we can't be entirely free from our passions and we, we maybe don't want to be free from our passions. And 
we also can't be completely free from externally imposed rules and expectations, you know, because we're, we, we live in situations where we're getting constant messages bombarding us from whether it's parents, society, you know, pop culture, social media, about how we should behave and what relationships should look like. But I think from the existentialists, I, I, I took away the message that it's important to create your own rules and be free, free to choose relationships that work for people in in the couple and if we can do that if we can free ourselves from from those from certain expectations of like the traditional you know heterosexual marriage and you know that traditional romantic path if we can free ourselves from from having to do that then I think we can be free to kind of reinvigorate love and have more authentically meaningful relationships with other people. So I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my next question. (laughs) (laughs) Because it seemed as if what you were, going back to the example with your your ex-boyfriend, you know, as you were describing the behavior, one of the things I was thinking about, are these norms and expectations that we have for monogamy? Are these the the norms and expectations that we have for heterosexual relationships and not necessarily relationships themselves? And so, so that's more of a question of sorts. And then the question is, since you were seeming to be hinting, what is the suggestion that, that, that you're making? If indeed what's happening here is the kind of the restriction, the confinement based on these rules. And these rules are very much in the traditional sense of the kinds of relationships that we, we, that we consider the norm. Then, then, then what are you suggesting? Or at least not telling us what to do, but what to do on the way of deciding what to do. And I'm thinking <laughs> about, let me be more explicit. I'm thinking about polymory. I'm thinking about a whole bunch of stuff uh, that can perhaps answer that question. But I wonder, I wonder what is your response? Yeah, I think it's, it consists in, um, well, first of all, reflecting on the um, pressures around us and, first of all, recognising what those pressures are and, you know, pushing back where they don't work for us. And I think some of the, you know, most destructive myths about romantic love that still persist are that, you know, love is about finding perfect harmony and oneness and or the romantic love that lasts forever is is what we should be aiming for. But, you know, romantic love is or... The romantic ideal is that, you know, we, we you fall in love and then live, get married, live happily ever after. So that's, you know, and the, the romantics um, with a capital R were the ones who are to blame for that kind of narrative. But the thing is that, you know, marital love is very different to romantic love. And it turns out neuroscience is finding that these hormones and the, the what is it, the endorphins and oxytocin, whatever that's rushing around in our brain, that kind of wears off within like two years if you're lucky. And so the problem is, I guess, if we're rushing into marriage as with marriage as like the pinnacle of the romantic ideal, like that's really problematic because we're basing um, long-term relationships on kind of a, a short-term fleeting, you know, attraction. So, I mean, I know that's, uh, you know, people are, are pushing back on that a lot. Um, but I think we need to keep reminding ourselves that, you know, maybe short-term relationships, like maybe if that romantic love or that relationship doesn't last forever, like that doesn't mean there wasn't love there. It doesn't mean yeah. it wasn't a legitimate relationship. And, you know, it's it's a really good thing that we can, you know, we're free to enter into relationships now, which is a fairly new kind of phenomenon because relationships used to be arranged. And, 
So yes, we're free to enter into relationships, which is really important, but you know, also being free to leave relationships, that's hugely important too. And, you know, being free to leave if, if it's not working out. And, but that doesn't mean, you know, you're a failure as a person or the relationship was a failure just because it didn't last forever. And I think the other thing that I personally took away from this in my existentialism and romantic love research in a more practical sense that is that I think relationships are best when, when lovers are good friends meaning that they respect each other's freedom. They're, they're supportive rather than controlling. And, you know, they can really kind of be there for each other and kind of let go of the, the kind of, well, Jean-Paul Sartre talked, to, talked about love as being trapped in like a cycle of sadomasochism and because one person's <laughs> always trying to, because people are trying to merge and they can't. So they're trying to kind of, they go into like a sadism mode where they're trying to force the other person to merge with them and that doesn't work. So, you know, they might be um, submissive and, and try and, you know, merge into the other person. But, you know, so he says we're kind of caught in this vicious circle. Um, whereas Simone de Beauvoir was like, come on, like, no, you can't, you don't, not all relationships have to be about, um, you know, dominating and possessing. Why can't we rise above um, that kind of dialectic and, you know, strive to be better friends and, and respect each other and, you know, just let go of it? And what's interesting is actually Jean-Paul Sartre in one of his notebooks that was published posthumously um, kind of conceded that Simone de Beauvoir was probably right about authentic love and that maybe you can overcome it. You know, not to reduce romantic love to, to friendship specifically, but understanding that friendship can be a good foundation for love. Because often we try and say, oh, like we, we put romantic love and, and friendship as opposites or, you know, right, you, right. you can't be both. But I'm... I want to emphasize that, you know, it, they, they work really well together and we should keep a foundation of friendship in our loving relationships. So you recommend that lovers should be friends. I wonder, do you also recommend that lovers be best friends? So I love that. I'm attracted to that idea. But at the same time, I've got this hesitation in the back of my mind that says, well, that's a lot of pressure to put on <laughs> right. one person. And so maybe, you, you know, you have a romantic relationship based on friendship, but it's also important to have other friends. And see, and this is another problem with the romantic ideal is that we've come to expect everything from that one person, you know, whereas you know, hundreds of years ago, you used to have, yeah, fine, you used to get married for procreation and, you know, accumulation of, of wealth or property or, or, you know, for the family business or whatever, but you weren't expected to be in love with that person. And you had your actual friends who were someone different, but now all of that is bundled up into this one person. And so I would say, yeah, if they're your best friends, that that's great, but, you know, you should also make sure that you have other friends that, and other good friends that you can share things with. So it's not, you don't put all your eggs in one basket, I guess is what I'm saying. As we as a country, as, as we as the world attempt to recover from a global pandemic that has been filled with, with loss for so many people, what tools do you think existentialism can provide to us? So one thing I've been thinking about during the pandemic is when Simone de Beauvoir wrote in The Ethics of Ambiguity that our freedoms support each other like the stones in an arch, but in an arch that no pillars support. And I think what she means by this is that we're abandoned on earth together and, yes, we're individuals, but we also share the same world. We share the same human condition. 
even though we face it in radically different ways and from radically different perspectives and, and situations. But I think what she's trying to do with this is build um, a kind of an ethics that provides a way to reach for a connection or a harmony with other people. Um, so back to the metaphor, if, if the stones are healthy, then the arch is healthy. And if people are healthy, then humanity is healthy. And if the COVID pandemic and, and global warming and all these other things have taught us anything, I, I, I want it to be that we're actually intimately bound to one another and that our well-being depends on everyone else's well-being. And fine, we might be able to wash our hands clean of the virus, but we can't wash our hands clean of responsibility. Now, world peace might be a stretch, but I think if we acknowledge this interconnectedness, then situations can improve. And, and you know, they, they do improve. So that's the first thing. And I think another thing is uh, coming to terms with our mortality. And certainly sometimes people are snatched away too soon, too tragically. And in Beauvoir's The Mandarins, which is um, sort of her most famous novel, there's there's a scene in the aftermath of World War II, and it's a village that is being devastated, and the survivors are kind of coming back together and, and gathering and, and eating and drinking. And Simone de Beauvoir has this comment in there. She's she says, "What else were they to do if not drink, laugh, tickle each other? As long as they were alive, they had to go on living." And this really resonated with me because, you know, on the one hand, it, it acknowledges that there is tragedy and, and absurdity in the world, but it's important to come to terms with the notion that, that you know, we are alive and, and life is worth living and that there is enjoyment to be squeezed out. And regardless of, of what you think happens after death, from an existential perspective, death means this particular life is gone and that should make each moment that we have now infinitely precious. So death is a fact of life, but this awareness should be reminding us to live urgently and, and passionately and, and look for ways to make our lives really meaningful and worthwhile. I like that. Thank you. So last year, you and your co-editors produced a book called How to Live a Good Life, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy. I love how inclusive it is um, as far as traditions are concerned. Why did you feel the need, not just professionally, but also uh, personally, to put that kind of book out into the world? The, the book How to Live a Good Life came from um, a conversation I had with my friend Massimo Pliucci, who is also um, one of the co-editors of the book. And we were talking about how, I mean, certainly philosophy had radically changed the course of my life, as I mentioned earlier. You know, I went from working in financial markets to an MBA to a PhD in existentialism. And yeah. <laughs> what a career. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and and Massimo, he came across a tweet about stoicism one day and that kind of changed his life and helped him deal with the midlife crisis. Um, so it was really that conversation that sparked the book. And, you know, we realize that often people have a personal philosophy, but either they don't know it or they don't reflect on it. And, and they certainly don't necessarily reflect on whether it's a good philosophy. And that was I was absolutely one of those people. Um, and before I really discovered philosophy during my MBA, I was very much swimming in ambiguity and, and wondering about how to create a good life. And so it was really serendipitous that I came across existentialism at this time. 
Um, and so existentialism, it wasn't a life raft exactly, but it definitely helped me to see my life more clearly and, and gave me some tools to help me swim and, and specifically to, I think, help me think more critically about life, such as, you know, the expectations and, and social norms that I had internalized about what it meant to live a good life, which as a woman in her 20s, um, you know, it was predominantly about that romantic narrative. And so it, it really, you know, coming across existentialism and, and thinking about how it can help lead a good life, it really inspired me to make sure, you know, I had my own career, that I didn't give up too much of myself for, for other people and, and also to muster the courage to negotiate childcare and housework with my partner. And that certainly made my life richer and better. And, but that's not to say that philosophy is, is self-help. And I think it, it's got to be careful about defining it as that. Like Nietzsche said, if you gaze too deeply into the abyss, the abyss gazes into you. And so I think, you know, philosophy, it can be really confrontational. Um, but how to live a good life was based on the idea that philosophy, it, it can be helpful and it can inspire changes for the better. And we thought it would also be a good way to better understand you know, other people who choose different philosophies of life. You are a black belt in Taekwondo. For how long have you been a black belt? And why did you select it among the other martial arts? So I started it as a teenager. Um, and actually, I, I did it because my brother started at first, and I needed to keep up with him. <laughs> um, but uh, so it was, I found it to be really excellent training in, in focus and discipline and, and certainly working at something over a long period of time, which came in handy for my PhD, which I, yeah, <laughs> which right. I thought about giving up many times, but, you know, working towards that. So, yeah, I, um, you know, I'm a little bit rusty now, but I do take my son to, to family classes and practice with him sometimes. But what is rusty? What, what qualifies as rusty if you were <laughs> in a back alley? <laughs> I had to do some kicks. Could you do it? Well, I I would like to think I could do it, but I don't. No, I don't. I I mean, the thing is, I don't know, and I've never had to. Um, I've never been put in that situation, which I'm internally grateful for. Um, touch wood. But um, I mean, the thing is, I mean, Taekwondo it teaches you the first thing you do is is try and run away. Like you don't mm -hmm. use it unless you absolutely have to as self defense. And so, yeah, I would. Um, I think. It definitely gave me you know more confidence in in my body but I would certainly avoid you know back alleys at, at all costs and hopefully never <laughs> hopefully I'll never have to you know test it out <laughs> right right it's it's evident that you've written about love as we discuss but I wonder what artists tv show what hobby have you grown to love in the last year oh well I'm going to say I have grown to love, although I sometimes hate, uh, running, actually. Um, and I started it to stay fit. I used to do lots of yoga but got bored with doing just that over COVID. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's interesting. I've been, I've been thinking about this a little bit in existential terms. Um, and so when I started jogging, everyone around me was, like, so shocked. And, and I'm like, I know. Who am I right now? <laughs> and, <laughs> So yeah, certainly an existential question there. And it's kind of nice to remind myself that, you know, I'm able to reinvent myself and, and create myself mm. in, in, in new ways. Um, and, and I can't help thinking about Nietzsche every now and again when, when I'm out there running um, a couple of things about him. Um, 
And one of them is, you know, his quote that's overused, but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Now, I don't agree with that as a blanket statement, but it's, it, <laughs> right. it definitely resonates me like while I'm running or, or I think doing any sort of activity like that where you're pushing your body to its limits or practicing kind of endurance and, and you know, sticking at something even when it's painful to get there because, you know, it does make you stronger or fitter or that sort of thing. Um, but actually a, a lesser known quote that um, pops in my head when I'm running is he says how wise it is at times to be a little tipsy. Um, now <laughs> I'm, I'm a couple of months into running, you know, I started getting the endorphins and now I kind of crave mm. it sometimes. And, and I find myself actually getting carried away with it. And I've injured myself a few times by going too hard at it. And so, but I think Nietzsche's advice is, is good because he's like, yeah, tipsy's fine, but don't get drunk. Don't, don't get addicted to something. And you know, he, he talked about love in the same way. So yeah, he's for, for Nietzsche, it's important to, um, keep your passions in check with reason or to keep, you know, the Dionysian, which is the wild, passionate, drunken side in, in balance with the Apollonian, which is, you know, the rational side. So that's a good reminder. Sky, thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, thanks so much, Maisha. It was fun. For more access to the Unmute podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.